This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 271, A Man Alone. Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages and morals, ideas and ideals, and seeing whether that episode stands the test of time. This week, past prologue. I kid. It's a man alone. The one where it's Odo against Deep Space Nine. A man, Odo, alone, against Deep Space Nine. (laughs) It's right there in the title. I get it. I get it. Yeah. That's good. John's got trivia coming up in just a bit, but first... But first, a word from our friends at Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships collection. Hey, it's our favorite classic collection of teeny tiny starships... The ones that are just perfect for building your own fleet. You could put them on your desk. You put them on the shelf behind your desk. You put them on the shelf above the TV. Honestly, Ken, anywhere you have a shelf is the perfect place to put the teeny tiny starships of the official Star Trek Starships collection. You know, we know a guy who says that he has not eaten on his dining room table yeah. in over yes. a year. <laughs> yes. Because he got like five or six of them, I think, and thought, oh, I'll just put them right here. And now, mm-hmm. seriously, I've seen a picture. His whole dining room table is just lousy with starships. I'm sorry, did I say lousy? I meant excellent. Excellent yeah, with starships. Yeah. I, yeah. I think maybe we should take a collection for him just so he can go back to eating on the dining room table. To buy a new table? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he would just cover that with starships, though. He's incorrigible. Please. Yeah, he is. He is. This is the collection that is officially authorized by CBS Studios, the official Star Trek Starships collection is available only from Eagle Moss Collections. This is the ultimate collection of vessels from across the Star Trek universe, from the original series to Deep Space Nine, all the way to Star Trek Beyond and beyond. I want to acknowledge you paused, but you still hear my voice. I couldn't mm-hmm. pull it off. I no, just couldn't I know. pull off the ultimate thing. I'm sorry. That's all right. Each model is made of die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials, then hand-painted with reference to the actual CG models used in production and, where they exist, photos of the original studio models. Each ship also comes with a display base, plus a collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of technology on board. Subscribe to the collection today to receive your first ship, the USS Enterprise NCC-1701D, for only $4.95 with free shipping. 
additional models, and there are already over a hundred of those models. The additional models will then ship twice monthly and are delivered directly to your door. As a subscriber, you're also entitled to free gifts worth over $90, and you may cancel your subscription at any time. Full details can be found at st-starships.com slash mission log. Now, if you'd rather purchase ships individually, you can do that. Things like the Bajoran Solar Sailor. Maybe that's the one ship you want. Or the Cardassian Galore class, or... DS9 itself. You can do that for a few dollars more, either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or your local comic shop. But again, to subscribe... I'm sorry, John. Will you please tell everybody to subscribe? To subscribe, all they need to do is go over to st-starships.com slash mission log. And once again, we thank Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn things over to the Trivia Master. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I present to you, Mr. John Champion. Well, thank you for that, Ken. Today's episode of Man Alone, the story is by Gerald Sanford and Michael Piller. Now, for Gerald, this episode is his only Trek contribution, and it comes rather late in his professional writing career. He started way back in the 1950s, penning episodes of shows like Matinee Theater and Dr. Kildare. Fast forward a little bit more, and he's contributing to Rod Serling's Night Gallery, Barnaby Jones, and Knight Rider. Teleplay for today's show is written by Michael Piller, and it was directed by Paul Lynch, We have to go way back to remember the first time we talked about Paul Lynch. He directed the third episode of Next Gen, The Naked Now. He did four more on that show, and he'll direct a total of five for Deep Space Nine as well. Oh, and he directed some Moonlighting, because, yes, he did. Yes. (laughs) And, yes, Ken, uh, continuing to clarify if there's anyone who has any confusion about the correct order for Deep Space Nine... This was the second episode produced, though it was the third to air after Emissary and Past Prologue. So that scene of Jake and Nog playing around by pranking guests at Quarks was originally in Emissary and moved by Michael Piller. Uh, It's also in this episode where we reintroduce Keiko and clarify that Nog is Rom's son. You might remember that in Emissary, we just refer to Nog as Quark's brother's boy, Well, here we actually describe who that is and how that relationship is. Now, uh, we get a really good close-up of a computer terminal in this one, also using that macOS system font Chicago that we mentioned last week. But did you freeze frame it like I did to see that one of the entries was for departure from Alderaan Spaceport? I did not freeze frame it, but I did notice that. Good. They spent a lot of time on that. And it was really large. Like, very often, if you had an Easter egg in TNG, it was pretty hidden. 
Yeah. And then you just saw it really, really quickly on this. It's front and center. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just going to say that it's one of those names that's in tribute because, of course, Alderaan was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So, you know, can't can't be the same place. Now, Ken, in our spotlight of the main cast of Deep Space Nine, today we're going to focus on Odo, played by René Aubergenois. Now, not unlike last week's spotlight on Nana Visitor, René is an actor who has a long family history in the performing arts and got most of his experience in live theater. He was born in New York, but lived in Paris for part of his childhood. John Hausman gave him his first theater gig when René was just 16. His on-screen career really runs the gamut. He was Father Mulcahy in the film version of MASH. Uh, he had a great role in the series Boston Legal. TV audiences saw a lot of René in the hit series Benson. He's also a renowned voiceover actor playing Chef Louis in The Little Mermaid and just working on so many other projects. Really too many to get into here. Now, I'd be remiss. If I didn't point out the 1980 Hanna-Barbera classic, The Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, for which he provided additional voices. Um, for those of you in the audience who don't remember this classic series, it is, of course, the one where the Fonz and Richie and Ralph and Potsy and uh, the Fonz's dog, Mr. Cool, <laughs> end up in a time machine and have adventures through time and oh. try to land back in 1957. It is so terrible. Uh, of course, you say that lovingly. I, well, I say that. <laughs> I, I do want to point out one interesting thing. So I first saw René Aubergenois uh, live in 1986. He played the Duke in the musical Big River, uh, the music by Roger Miller. And that was based on the Huckleberry Fenn uh, stories from Mark Twain. He was awesome in that he's still, uh, because he was in the original Broadway cast, he is on the soundtrack uh, for that show. And it is a great soundtrack, even just on its own. Now, let's talk about the guest stars. Zara, the worked-up Bajoran, is played by Edward Lawrence Albert. Does that name sound vaguely familiar? Well, he is the son of Eddie Albert, who starred in Green Acres. Now, coming from a family that was in the biz, Edward started acting early. His first feature film was The Fool Killer when he was just 11 years old. But even before that, he was appearing as himself, well, as a baby on Texaco Theater, and then at seven years old on This Is Your Life. A lot of TV and film followed. Uh, Midway, Kung Fu, a favorite B-movie of mine, Galaxy of Terror... And he had recurring roles on Falcon Crest, The Yellow Rose, and the 1980s Beauty and the Beast. And let's throw in a little love boat while we're at it. Stephen James Carver plays Ibudan. We've actually glimpsed him a bit before in Next Gen. He was in Descent and in Redemption 2. Otherwise, he has just a handful of credits as a TV guest star and a couple of roles in films. And finally, Tom Clunas plays the old man. Now, his career in TV goes back to the 1960s, and he appeared on a number of soap operas, Search for Tomorrow, Ryan's Hope, and yes, The Guiding Light. Yes. This is his only Trek appearance. It is said, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. But sometimes, you do get a second chance to make a second impression. Mm -hmm. 
back to the story. It's a day that ends in Y, and that means Dr. Bashir is in hot pursuit of Lieutenant Dax. She's being nice about it, but Julian really needs to back off. He sort of seems to get that message when he thinks Ben Sisko is interested in Dax. Though Ben says, it's not like that. If Bashir is interested in pursuing Jadzia, he shouldn't let Sisko stop him. Still, there is a sort of wistfulness between Dax and Sisko over dinner. She says some friendships don't survive the trill transition from one host to another. Ben confesses the whole thing does make him a little uncomfortable. And Jadzia suggests he get comfortable with that discomfort. Keiko's story. Keiko O'Brien doesn't want to be on Deep Space Nine. She's a botanist, and there's no need for a botanist on a space station. Miles suggests she plant some plants, maybe start an arboretum. He also points out that there are tons of ships headed through the wormhole into the Gamma Quadrant. He could get her on one of those ships to explore the new plants. But she says she doesn't need his charity. What she needs is to feel useful. She's also pretty sure she doesn't want to raise their child here, a belief reinforced by the trouble encountered by Jake Sisko and the young Ferengi, Nog. With nothing to do, they make trouble on the promenade, releasing some space fleas on an unsuspecting couple. First they're itchy, then they change colors. Uh, The people do. Then they're fine. But the kids are busted for their mischief. Keiko sees all of it and tells Miles that these kids need structure, something to do. They need a school. And there is a way for Keiko to feel useful. She can run a school for the very few kids on board. Ben can't promise her that any kid besides his will be there. What he can promise is space, computers, the materials she'll need to make a school work. While she must have done some other recruiting, the only other parent to which we see her reach out is Nog's father, Rom. And he is not interested in Keiko's idea. What can a human teach his son that his Ferengi father can't? Well, she says, I could teach him about other cultures, their rules, their habits, what motivates them. Wouldn't that make him a better negotiator? A better business Ferengi? Rom will think about it. In the end, Keiko has her class. Jake, Nog, and a couple of nameless extras. The kids of DS9 will have structure, an education, and Keiko can feel useful. Odo's story. Odo and Quark are talking at Quark's bar. Business is booming. Keiko and Miles O'Brien are fighting. Odo thinks Cisco's into Dax. Quark disagrees. It's a friendly conversation between two people who are, well, not friends, but familiar. The conversation is cut short when Odo notices a certain Bajoran at the Dabo table. In no time, Odo's up telling the man he has 26 hours to get off of Deep Space Nine. He later explains to Sisko that the man, Ibudan, traded in black market goods during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. Some saw him as a hero, though Odo saw him let a child die when the kid's parents couldn't afford the medicine that he had. Ibudan also killed a Cardassian officer who wanted a payoff to look the other way. That got him sent to prison for murder, something Odo saw too personally. Of course, killing a Cardassian isn't seen as the worst thing in the world to the provisional government. And so, Ibudan is out of prison. Odo wants him gone, though Sisko says he hasn't done anything. 
Odo says he'll figure out a way to make him leave. And Cisco's like, dude, law and order. You either operate within the rules or I'll find somebody to do your job who can. So it really doesn't look good when Ibudan turns up dead in a holodeck with a knife in his back. And it looks worse when it seems that no one could have killed him except Odo. The door to the holodeck only opened twice, once to admit Ibudan, and a second time, presumably for the killer to exit. But how did the killer get in? There's no evidence of a beam in. It's possible they entered at the same time, though forensic analysis shows only Ibudan's DNA and the DNA of the crew examining the scene. If the doors were closed, only someone who could have squeezed between them could have committed the murder. Someone like a shapeshifter. The case for Odo's innocence is not helped by a visit from Mr. Zera. The Bajoran tells Sisko and Major Kira what he heard Ibudan say at Quark's bar, that he was afraid that Odo was going to kill him. Kira says there's not a more honorable man than Odo on DS9. Maybe so, says Zera. All I know is, an hour later, Ibudan was dead. The case against Odo mounts when an examination of Ibudan's calendar shows that he planned to meet with Odo at the exact time of his murder. And the security officer has no alibi. He was spending time as liquid in a bucket in the back of his office at the time. It's a shapeshifter thing. Meanwhile, Zera is doing a bit of rabble-rousing, stirring up others against Odo. He was the last security chief of DS9 under the Cardassians. Why is he still security chief now? They won't even be dissuaded when Quark, no friend of Odo's, defends the security chief. All of this is observed with detached interest by an older Bajoran who notices in a detached way. Julian's looking at the case from a sciency medical angle, and he's found something weird. Ibudan was growing something. Something cellular. Julian doesn't know what it was, though he'll try to regrow whatever it is that Ibudan was growing. The rabble roused by Zera has landed at Cisco's feet. They want to see Odo removed from the case. You know, they'd like somebody else to investigate the murder for which Odo is accused. Cisco says he wants Odo to know that he doesn't think Odo did it, though Odo's like, you don't know, I totally could have killed him. Not helping. Also not helping, the growing sentiment against Odo. He returns from his meeting with Cisco to find his office wrecked and covered in graffiti. Not much later, the unseen crowd is very visible as a mob. They don't want revenge, they say. They want justice. Cisco chides the mob. An hour later, they'll regret what they tried to do here. But they'll hear none of it. What they will hear... Science! Julian's figured out what Ibudan was growing. It was another Ibudan. And now Odo's figured it out. Remember the older Bajoran that was noticing things in a detached sort of way? That was the original Ibudan. He cloned himself killed the clone, and framed Odo for the murder. But, says Odo, killing your own clone is still murder, and Ibudan will pay. Again. When it's over, the mob has decided, though no one has apologized to Odo for his treatment. The end. Wait, can, can, time out, time out. Yeah, um, yeah. Something is different. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> not everything is lining up exactly the way I expect it to. Did you watch past prologue again? Oh, is that what it was? That's why. That's yeah. why. Yeah. No, look, um, uh, so it's our prerogative to change the show the way we like to. And you decided to change the show this week. Yeah, I know. I don't know okay. why it, it didn't. I think it's because it really just sort of felt like they felt like three disconnected stories. The, the Dax story was sort of the smallest of all of them. Although mm. as I was writing it, I wondered if maybe I had messed up a tiny bit because mm. uh, there's more than one shapeshifter on this space station that we yeah. know of. There is Odo and there's Dax. Yeah. And I know Dax isn't a shapeshifter, but Dax isn't exactly who Dax was before. Right. And so there may be like, you may be able to make a case for, you know, there being a similarity or a juxtaposition between these two characters that was kind of important. Honestly, after watching it three times and then getting ready to write the recap, all I could really keep my head on was, okay, so there's the Odo story and the Keiko story, and they just don't blend at all. And right. so the thought of going back and forth between those two stories uh, just really kind of depressed me. And so I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll tell them separately because they're really separate stories anyway. And so, yeah, yeah. I did it differently. It's funny. I thought they might have made something out of uh, Cisco's judgment of Nog and telling Jake, like, you stay away from that Ferengi kid. And then in the end, like, oh, he's okay. He's all right. He just needs to be taught. You know, but they didn't really ever go there. <laughs> so yeah. I, I thought even if you tried to grasp at that and and pull those together, yeah, I, I think you made the right decision. And and who knows? Maybe next week, maybe the the next recap will be all in iambic pentameter. Maybe <laughs> it'll just be maybe it'll just be interpretive dance. Well, let me see. Next week is yours, right? So if you want to do iambic pentameter, knock yourself out, man. Or, or interpretive dance. No, I don't think so. No? Okay. No, I'll save that right. for me because that's less writing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if, that's, if that's okay with you. Yeah. But anyway, but we had to bring it up because, yeah, change, changed up the usual prologue, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, Act 5 structure. And, and I, I think that served this story well. Um, I, I feel like this being kind of toward the beginning of DS9, they're still trying to sort of explain DS9 to you. And, and who these characters are. And the story is just one other thing that's happening. Now we're making a big deal about it. I'm wondering if we should have just done Act 1 through Act 5. But it just, it, just felt, yeah, it just felt forced in a way. Like it almost feels like they had a shorter show. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, let's have them do something. It's good to see, by the way, that the O'Brien marriage is as strong as ever. <laughs> yeah. Just as, there's so much healthy communication between those two. Yeah. I want to hang out with them. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Talk about where Miles leaves his socks and, mm -hmm. and then we're done. Yeah. Hey, uh, so on to the, uh, the pithy observations. Uh, I found the end to have a very Mission Impossible feel. Uh, I will I will accept <laughs> Scooby-Doo as an answer, but to me, it's Mission Impossible. Old man Ibudan. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yes, I didn't mention that part. For people who haven't seen it or who haven't seen it in years. Mm -hmm. So this is Star Trek, the one where we know that they, um, they, they surgically altered Deanna so that she could look like a Romulan, mm -hmm. right? And uh, surgically altered Worf as well. So he could yeah. not look like a Klingon. Right. right. But, uh, but older Ibudan is just a guy in a mask. Mm-hmm. 
It's hysterical to me. Yeah, that's what they do. And then I, and I, I love the cut because you have to make sure the cut, the, the other actor's arm in this case, uh, Renee is just reaching around to obscure the mask. So you have to do that cut because the mask is going to look bad no matter what. So then you, you pull it off. Oh, it, I just, oh, I love it. And they did it. No, just, it's well done. I mean, yeah, if that's yeah. what you're going to do, mm-hmm. it was very well handled. I just can't believe that's what they decided to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like maybe yeah. have it be five years ago or 10 years ago and then it's like a significantly younger or older Ibudan mm, mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. but how can he how can he still look so young right. especially after all that time in a prison or yeah. something like that it's like yeah. no it's just you know it's, it's him and then hanging out with another guy in a mask yeah so at the top of the show, uh, when I saw that brain teaser, I, I was worried for a minute because it was a CG kind of orb looking thing in the room. And I thought, oh, man, we are just a short step away from a head and a bubble and mud baths for everyone. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you if you were like me and thought to yourself, the higher, the further. Or the higher, the fewer. I'm sorry. The higher, the fewer. Oh, I messed <laughs> oh. it up. Oh. Yeah. I'm going to blame any mistake I make, like, on being sick, by the way. If you hated the Act 1 through Act 5 thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's not been a good week for me. I'm sorry. The higher, the fur. Mm-hmm. Fewer. Mm-hmm. I meant to say fewer. That's... Hey, speaking of awful episodes with children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the scene with the kids and the couple and the fleas. Yep. Is just terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, like on every level, it's just awful. And I understand they had like a very small frame with which to work, especially because we're still dealing with mostly square televisions at the time, not the bigger aspect ratio we have today. Sure. But like the, the almost like, you know, like, like, like prancing away, like a, like a silent movie, bad guy, Mm -hmm. you know, that Nog does. And then the fact that these people turn colors and they're freaking out and they're yelling to everybody and then they stop turning colors. And so they assume they're fine. Right. Right. <laughs> with the two kids, like literally maybe two and a half feet away, laughing their heads off at them. Mm-hmm. It's just a bad, bad scene. It's it a is. bad scene. I, I can't disagree with you there. All right. <laughs> Thanks. I, yeah, I, uh, I don't want to know what steamed Asna is, okay. but, but I respect where Cisco is coming from. So no nummy noise from you is what you're saying. Nope. No, okay. no, we didn't even get to see it. And I'm a little disappointed because on this show, we, we've in two episodes now, we've kind of made a thing about food and drinks yeah. on board Deep Space Nine. So if you're going to make a big deal out of the steamed Asna, I want to see it. You know, it's weird. I actually kind of want to try it. <laughs> well, I'm sure. See, now you've put that out there to the world, and yeah. we're going we're gonna to show up uh, in Vegas or, or wherever, yeah. some appearance, and somebody's going to bring you steamed asna. Now you'll have no idea what it is. I'll just say, like, sure, this is steamed asna. I'd be like, oh, great. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm guessing it's like here's what I kept picturing, like noki. Oh, uh, sure, okay. That's what I figure steamed asna is. Maybe okay. maybe like a spinach noki mm, to give it mm. sort of a you know sort of a healthier like super green kind of thing. But that's sure. my guess. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I want to try it. Maybe because I immediately put something in my head that I was like, "It must be that." Especially because Cisco's only problem is the fact that it's steamed. He lists all the different ways. He's like, um, he's like uh, the kid from Bubba Gump Shrimp, like Bubba, I guess, <laughs> yeah. naming all the different ways that he would eat asna, but not steamed. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I will just say because when we come to our wrap up at the end of the show, we'll, we'll talk about production quality and acting and all that stuff. I, I will say that I think that that scene is a step backward. 
Um, it was not a good scene. I get the gist of the scene. I respect the gist of the scene because I'm totally on the same page as Cisco. Just don't think it was a good scene. Um, I see what you're saying. And yes, mm -hmm. I imagine we will talk about that again in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice little line in there. Uh, Odo tells uh, Ibadan, you have 26 hours to leave this station. I, I like that because you could just go like, hmm, is he... Is he giving him a day, like 24 hours, but just a little extra, just in case he needs it? No, no. In fact, we're in orbit of Bajor, where a day is 26 hours. That is a neat little, uh, neat, neat little detail. Oh, so we actually know that a day is 26 hours on Bajor? Well, we do now. Oh, okay. So you're assuming that's yeah. what that was then? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. it could just be being nice. He could, well, he could. I mean, that could be the other thing. Like, I would normally it would be 24 hours. Right. But you know what? I've been a little unfair to you, so I'm going to give you a little <laughs> bit more time. Not much, because I haven't yeah. been that unfair. So just right. you right. get two extra hours to get out of here. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Do we know how Dabo is played? Uh, the only answer right now is frequently. Um, well, yeah. Well, it's yeah. one frequently, apparently. Yeah. Unless, yeah, yeah. unless when the house wins, they yell Dabo, but I can't imagine that would please everybody. <laughs> right. And she's like, yeah. Dabo, and then takes everybody's money. And she's like, yeah, they all seem to keep coming. So I'm assuming <laughs> they must win sometime. Yeah. Um, when we see Keiko's classroom, it, it, it's interesting because that, that looks like what I thought when I was a kid is what I thought and, and what I wanted my own classroom of the future to look like. You know, mm. like classrooms really never changed a lot. You know, I'm sure that when I was in school, we were still using the same wooden top desks that at that point were 20 or 30 years old. Right. Um, but I, I remember like being a kid and being at Epcot and going through Spaceship Earth. And it's all about communication. And one of the scenes toward the end is like, and here's the classroom of the future. And it's that as much a kid sitting at these white molded plastic desks with computers built in. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's just a step away for me, no, no, never, never in a school that looked like that. But I'm, I'm glad that vision of the future is alive here on, uh, on Deep Space Nine. And uh, speaking of that schoolroom, uh, Miles comes in to greet Keiko and uh, brings her this school bell. And he goes, it's just a little something I replicated on the way over. Yes. I, I guess we're back to that thing where it truly is the thought that counts. It's not the thing, because the thing could literally just be anything that you replicate. That's, that's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He could have just brought her a gift card. He could have. He could have. You know? <laughs> you won one item at the replicator or at the replimat. He could have. Except he did think of something that was stereotypically a teacher's thing. He did. He typically did. or stereotypically, whichever way you want to put it. He, I mean, it could have been worse. He could have just brought her an apple. Sure. Yeah, that that could have been. But but hey, it's a replicator. He could think he could have brought her like a fifty carat diamond. Like here, I just you know because I can because it's a replicator. Yeah, so. but then people will talk about how teachers are overpaid and they should shut up and do their jobs and blah blah blah. Because look at her, she's walking around with a fifty carat diamond. No, no, no. Right. She's, yeah. Do you think so? Do you think you could get it engraved? Yeah. Like because you can just have stuff like like replicated just the way you want it, right? Yeah. Yeah, because it can be like, oh, and it's engraved. It doesn't really matter. You can just like throw it away and have it re-replicated with whatever you want the engraving to be. But I thought about an, an, an engraving uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And then the line inside says, good for one free engraving. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, you mentioned it in your recap. Uh, how about that moment uh, that Odo has with Cisco? How did you mm-hmm. know I didn't kill Ibadan? <laughs> it, it's a little threatening. And Cisco's right. I mean, Odo needs to not head up the investigation. Um, but but what is Odo hoping to accomplish there? Just to leave on an antagonistic note? That's a really good question. I mean, there were a couple of times in this episode, actually, where I thought of him again as sort of that Old West lawman. Same as we talked about last mm-hmm. week when he was like, I'm the one giving you the choice. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of him again this time. Well, I mean, he's he's actually... He's sort of putting himself uh, as more of a man alone, let's say. When Cisco, you know, is like, I, you, you gotta understand, I don't think so. And Odo's like, why? You don't know me. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it could be that he's just angry and trying to, trying to, he could be reacting in, in, in anger or, or hurt, I suppose. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe he's trying to put the fear in Cisco. I don't know. That does seem like a bad idea, though. Just this little, yeah, it's a strange way to do it. You just need to be like, okay, all right, I get it. I'll, I'll step down. I hope you have my back. <laughs> but yeah. Um, one cool thing, though, the Odo just pours himself into a pail when he needs to chill. That is super cool. That is a great thing to be able to do. I do have a suggestion for Odo, though. Um, now that you need to do some redecorating and rebuilding, make those glass windows in front of Odo's office out of something other than glass. I'm going to go with transparent aluminum, maybe. I think this episode title is some kind of palindrome. A man. Alone. A pale shapeshifter. Panama. So we have heard from people that we are going to be looking at a uh, at a darker show when we watch Deep Space Nine. Yeah, you mean literally and uh, and figuratively. Well, literally and figuratively, right? That we're going to be looking at a darker show. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the first episode's the first episode. Yes, it's uh, Deep Space Nine itself is coming out of hard times, but it ends, you know, on a pretty positive note. Yep. Um, as much as we liked the last episode, it wasn't necessarily a Deep Space Nine episode specifically. We've seen Bajoran episodes on TNG before. Mm-hmm. You know, and some, some of the episodes of TNG were dark and some were not. And there's a real opening statement about how much darker life is for people on DS9 than for people, say, on the Enterprise. Odo and, and Quark are watching the O'Briens fight. Yep. And Odo says, what could they be going on about? And Quark says, she doesn't like it here. And Odo says, hmm, who does? <laughs> yeah. They're all free to go, right? Yeah, I, I, now they are, yes. Right. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. sort of the, it's, we've talked before about post-scarcity economy and blah, blah, blah. And yet we've also talked about the fact that the Star Trek universe is lousy with minors, M-I-N-E-R-S. Mm-hmm. People who are doing hard, backbreaking labor, obviously for some sort of reward. Mm-hmm. I mean, there may be some people who are like, yeah, you know, all I really want to do is dig stuff out of other stuff. Right. Oh, have I got a job for you? <laughs> you know, says everybody. Yeah. But um, 
it was it's it's strange to hear one of our lead characters on a Star Trek series say none of us want to be here. Yeah. I mean it was kind of it was like it stopped me each time actually. And there's a real distinction uh with Keiko kind of describing how cush it is to have a job on a starship yeah. where everything works, everything's cool and I thought well Starfleet are now the ones who are kind of putting things back together at Deep Space Nine. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the same Starfleet that has, oh, uh, you may remember the Enterprise or um, <laughs> other starships where things are in good working order and uh, there is some structure and they just kind of, they drop off, uh, they drop off Miles and they, they drop off Cisco and his kid and say, um, go to it, guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're that part of Starfleet that's doing that now. Yeah, right. 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 But you, you'd think they'd... Uh, I, I'm not saying they're going to turn it into the lobby of the Hilton right away. But um, you, you'd think that uh, it wouldn't be so dismal. But, you know, maybe they are dealing with people who have been there for a long time. And they, they are in the mindset of this is a terrible place to be. It's, it's, it's too bad. But like you said, they are, they are free to go. Although Cisco made a compelling argument to Quark that he should stay, which was somewhere along the lines of, you should really stay. <laughs> I've got your nephew. <laughs> I've got your kid. <laughs> yeah. That was his compelling case for that. No, I mean, here's the thing. My assumption is they're free to go. Mm-hmm. But are they free to go in the same way that, you know, you're free to leave the city that you live in, mm-hmm. even though right. you have a job in the city where you live in and you won't have a job the next place you go and your family and your support structure are in the city that you live in and you won't necessarily know anybody the next place you go. I mean, we've always sort of assumed that, I mean, the the impression that we've been given by Star Trek to this point is that we live in in a time where you want to do something, go do that thing. And is it because we're on the frontier now that people don't feel they can do that? Because why not go to the to the warm, glowing heart of the Federation that is, you know, Earth, mm-hmm. say, and, and find something you want to do and do that rather than staying out there complaining? Yeah. Or is this a hard scrabble group of people who are sort of like, yeah, I go my own way. I'm a man alone for crying out loud. No, I don't <laughs> like it, but it's what I do. Ah. I mean, there's, it, I mean one, there's one guy who's like, uh, I could really go for a Scottish theme park. Exactly. That, that's Maybe exactly that's where I'd want to live. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I don't, I mean, I'm, it was just, it was just an odd thing to see. I yeah. mean, again, I yeah. know we know that this is darker, mm-hmm. but to hear that our characters don't like the fact that they're in a darker place yeah. was, was jarring. Well, it, which is interesting that it's Odo because, Odo has nobody and no ties to anything. He he actually could go anywhere. That's now, true. I think in this episode, we're uh, particularly with that scene with Cisco, we're we're seeing him show this kind of harder edge. Maybe he's a little um, his buttons are a little easy to push, but he actually could go anywhere. He he's <laughs> yeah he's got no tie. So uh, I, I've got some notes on some different elements of this episode. Um, okay. One of the elements that I think is really interesting is uh, how about that Bashir and Dax relationship? Um, because I like 
that we are exploring the trill more here, certainly than we did in next gen with the host. I mean, that, that was a sort of dipping our toes into the water of this, but now we've got a trill who's a regular character and we introduce this sort of pathetic version of Bashir right away, uh, mm-hmm. who, who is just all up in her business. Um, well, what I really like about Dax, really like that scene uh, in, in her talking to Cisco, saying, I loved, I suggest you learn to be comfortable with your discomfort. Great line. And I, and then sort of the reality, uh, not that it was such a profound line, but the reality of her situation, which was saying that our friendships often don't survive because of this change. Um, which you could certainly make a real life parallel to that. People find it difficult to accept and adapt to change in others. Um, but it's an interesting parallel to set up. It would be one thing if Dax just showed up and you just said, okay, Jedzia Dax looks like this. What is she said? She's 29. Jedzia Dax looks like this 29 year old woman who's very attractive. And of course, this doctor who is around the same age is sort of smitten with her and, and wants to get to know her. Oh, but she's actually a symbiote. And there's another being inside her that's 300 years old. If you just said that, that would be one thing. <laughs> but I love the fact that. Cisco knows this other character in a different form hmm. because we actually get to experience that. We, we actually, it was a little weird hearing him about to tell the story about him and Curzon Dax and the twins. And I was like, wait, wait, where is this going? This, this sounds a little strange, but, but I, I like the fact that this is something coming out of character rather than just telling the audience, you know? Yeah. But, um, I'm actually, okay, there's so many things that I don't know and don't know yet. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've seen Julian be, you know, puppy dog around Jadzia Mm -hmm. for exactly three episodes now. Yep. If it stays this way for a season or two seasons, that's going to get old and it's going to get boring. Yeah. What I then began to wonder is, like, do the... Sexism alarm bells go off. Like, why is nobody stopping him from being a jerk? I was actually kind of bothered that Cisco said, "Hey, don't let me stand in your way." Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of wish he had some, said something like, "Are you sure she's interested, or do you think she's even remotely interested?" Because I'm guessing no, mm-hmm. because there's nothing that she has said or done that has indicated to Julian that she would be interested. And so then you kind of look at it and go, "Okay, so this was written what late '90s, mid to late '90s." Early 90s, actually. Early to mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So early to mid 90s. This is still a perfectly acceptable trope on television. Mm-hmm. Would it be written the same way today? I don't know. But then the other thing to include is the part that you were just talking about, where inside this 29-year-old woman is a 300-something-year-old something, mm-hmm. right? And so is Dax, the, the, the thing inside Jadzia, amused is it funny? I mean, right. is she, is she, are they, uh, forgive me, I'm not knowing exactly how to talk about a trail. Is she like able to sort of let it roll off her back because she's been around for 300 years. She's seen many people do many stupid things over the course of three centuries. 
I mean, is this the kind of thing where we need to say, hey, he's not treating her right because she's 300 years old. And if she were like in the same bar with us, she'd be like, I got this. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, on the one hand, it sort of feels like it sort of feels like there's something weird going on with these characters. And on the other hand, these are weird characters. And I don't know, like, I don't know how to respond to it, really. Except I will go back to what I said a moment ago. If we're like at the end of season one and he's still being this derpy, I'm going to be a little annoyed. Yeah. And I cut him a little bit of slack to to be the guy who's a sort of smitten and doesn't know what to do with that. But at yeah. the same time, I can't give him slack if basically she's saying no. <laughs> because she, like Odo... Uh, they both in this episode have moments of saying like, yeah, I, I just, uh, this is difficult, uh, <laughs> you know, for many reasons. So relationships are not really something that we do. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I love the exploration of how the, the, the trill being influences and and, and is influenced by the body that is in Mm -hmm. i'm fascinated by the idea of this external shell changing the way that people perceive the the being as a whole i think that that's fascinating as well but yeah if this is one note this is going to be a problem yeah big big problem Uh, because i want to see bashir be smarter than that but again right now i'm going to give bashir a little slack so we'll We'll see where it goes from there. All right, so let's talk about Odo a little bit. Um, Odo saying to uh, to Cisco, laws change based on who's making them, but justice is justice. That was one of the lines that made me think Old West Lawman again. A hundred percent. And yeah. funny how that comes right back around to bite him. <laughs> uh, because the mob of angry people on Deep Space Nine seem to be very determined about justice rather than the law. I hope he learned something from that. Don't know if he will. Don't know if he did. But I hope so. Um, and I have many, just so many questions about cloning here. Um, <laughs> so, Like, is that how it really works? Hey, let's, what was he growing? I don't know. We better grow it and find out. And then it yo, gets big. It's like, oh, can somebody get me a bigger pan? Please, can yeah, we get a bigger pan? Because this is going to... Ooh. Yeah, this is medically unethical. Flowing yeah. over the side here, this whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, when Ubadon is making clones, mm-hmm. is he also dropping like a, a brain scan of some sort in there? Because a clone is just biology. It, it's just the body and the, and the structure of, of the brain. It, it doesn't have all the experiences and, and all the memories. So it seems like there's got to be some level of programming there as well. Like, like, like say you take your old, uh, let's say you, you want to make a Kalos. Say you want to make a, a savior for the Klingon people. Well, right. you have this shell that you can grow from a hair follicle, but you have to give it memories. You, you have to program it in some way. Right. And when that clone of Ibodon wakes up for the first time, does the real Ibodon, let's call him Ibodon Prime, Say something along the lines of, hey, glad to meet you. Uh, you're me, and I'm going to kill you right? a little bit later. Yes, I guess you yeah. do. I don't know. I mean, really, when these questions will be answered is next week when we meet mm. the other Ibudan clone. Because I assume he's still going to be around. 
Yeah, because at the end of the episode, we have a whole new fully formed humanoid Bejoran. Yes. Ibudan. Yeah. Grown from the original. Yeah. I love how blithely um, uh, Bashir said that, right? It's like, what happens this way? He's like, oh, in two days, he's a Bajoran. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is something I can do in my lab. I can just, I could make these all day. <laughs> Seriously. Just, yeah. But they'll all be like this yeah. one. That's the one thing. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And and what did, what did Odo say? Let's hope he doesn't follow in his creator's footsteps or something like that. I mean, will right. he actually know how to speak? Yeah, they didn't really spend much time thinking about the cloning part, I think. No. I think they thought about it as like a, you know, it's like a diagnosis murder case, but not so much like about the, yeah. well, now, wait a minute. Would he be cool with that? And would he know all of that stuff? Because it seems to me he's got to be in cahoots. Yeah. With older Ibudan, who's actually not much older. Um, unless older old man Ibudan has been telling him, you know, all sorts of stories like, yeah, you're going to watch out for that shapeshifter because he's going to try to kill you. All right. My assumption right. is they were actually, you know, in on it together. And yes, for whatever reason, the clone, you know, died willingly at at the other Ibudan's hand. Uh, this is so strange to me. Yeah. Because you do still have the problem of, okay, how did they both get into the holodeck at the same time? They must right. have both come in at the same time, right? Because right. there's right. only the record of the door opening the one time when the other one left. Mm-hmm. So he must have been in there. He could have been in there waiting, hiding. But but then how do you tell the, the Ibadan clone, like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in there right. and get a massage from the weird amphibious fish lady with the webbed hands. Right. And then she's going to run away when I pull a knife. I, it just, yeah. Where do you hide it's, in a holodeck? That's the other thing, though, unless he comes in, like, with the holodeck program already running. Uh, that could happen, or you could have another holodeck program running that looks like an empty holodeck. Yeah. But you're just hiding in one of those, you know, orange stripes on black, whatever. See, they, I think we did. were on to yeah. something real when we were asking, like, you know, is, is like, is raising a clone to murder actually murder? Right. 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 And does that, does that clone know if that clone is a version of you? You know, see, uh, I, I think when we're there, we're onto something. I think then when we start saying, "Okay, but how did he get into the holodeck?" Yeah, that's something else. We become those people. Yeah, don't don't. Yeah, <laughs> this is a conversation we should never have. Don't go there. Do right. not send emails about that part. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Although it's funny, I thought that cloning meant that you started out with a cell. That divides and grows just like an embryo does. We're going to continue. But here we have, we have a massive goo that's like, did you ever buy those things in, in like a, a science museum gift shop that's like grow your own dinosaur and it's a tiny pellet? Yeah. And then you put it in water and it just swells up to like 500 times its normal size. That's kind of how they made Ibodan. It is, it is kind of like that. Yeah, massive goo. And then suddenly it looks humanoid. By the way, I think I found your tie-in to the Keiko storyline, which is now we have this empty clone of Ibudan. He needs to go to school. Oh, that's right. It's sort of mm-hmm. like, a, it's like a, oh, it's like Star Trek meets Billy Madison. Yes, that is exactly what I wanted to see. Hey, by the way, speaking of Keiko, uh, shall we talk about the Bickering O'Briens? Oh, I think we should. Their own show, the Bickering O'Briens, yeah. coming this fall. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that it was Miles who thought, hey, you know what we need for all these kids on this station? <laughs> a school. I think it's really good that the engineer mm-hmm. of this place being you know, run at least in part by Starfleet 
came up with the idea of having a school for kids just to keep his wife quiet. Yeah, I have a bit of a problem with the writing and their relationship in this episode. Really? Seems, yeah. Really, you do? Okay, now, 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 now tell me mm-hmm. which part exactly does not present a problem for you. <laughs> okay. We'll start at the beginning. And when I say beginning, I mean way back in TNG. <laughs> and the one where we suddenly find out that they're getting married mm-hmm. because Data has introduced them, even though we never saw her before and never saw them introduced? Yes, it might have something to do with okay. that. Yeah. All right, good, good, good. Um, okay. I, I get the impression that Miles just sort of sprang this whole DS9 thing on her. Ah, <sighs> okay. Yeah, because I... I, I Look, I, I don't need – I understand that TV shows are written where you get only the exposition that you need and you move on so you can tell the story and, and you can have the plot. But the problem is when a lot of this plot revolves around them bickering, I, yeah. it just makes me feel bad and like I'm missing out on something, uh, something important because it does feel like Miles is just like, hey, guess what? We're going to DS9. And Keiko, rightfully so, would probably rather be anywhere else. And it feels like she didn't really get a say in this. Or if she, even if she did get a say in this, it feels like she wasn't uh, basing her decision on complete information. Miles could have been like, yeah, it'll be, oh, the Federation's uh, establishing the, this presence in the space station, and it'll be beautiful, and it'll be great. It is sort of like um, Cisco. At the beginning of Emissary, you know, Jake's there fishing in the holodeck and he's like, oh, it's going to be fantastic. It'll be like shore leave. You can go down to Bajor and there's kids everywhere. You lied. You lied to your kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. I so here's the thing. The relationship between Keiko and Miles has been written so poorly since we first came across it. Absolutely. I mean, what I'm what I'm really hoping for, because we got seven seasons of this, mm-hmm. right? What I'm really hoping is that we get some growth out of their relationship and that we get some growth out of the Keiko character. Because so far, she's really only about a half a step ahead of uh, Trixie Norton. Yeah. It feels to me yeah. like. And and he's when when we're dealing with her, he's only about a half a step ahead of Ed Norton. Yeah. I mean, it, they're not a well-written couple. They're not a well-written team. That said... <sighs> I don't know. I mean, you feel like maybe Miles didn't tell her everything. I feel like she sort of went along with it, saying it would be fine. And then when they get there in the middle of it, suddenly it's not fine, even though she had said the whole time that it was fine. I'll tell you, honestly, one thing that does bother me is is when he says, there's a whole new quadrant of the galaxy with plants that nobody's ever seen before. Well, nobody from this quadrant anyway. Plants that nobody's ever seen before. And she's like, yeah, but there are all these ships going, you know, to to explore them. And I'm not on any of them. And he says, I can get you on one. And she says, I don't need your charity. Mm-hmm. It's not charity. Mm-hmm. They have strengths. Individually, they have strengths. And they can use their strengths not only to propel themselves, but to hopefully help each other as well. And when she said, I don't need your charity, it seemed to me, oh, okay. So we're not really talking about a problem that you're having. We're talking about the fact that you're mad at me. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of that kind of bothered me because it's it's sort of like and I understand it is not always the job of the man or the other person to fix the problem. But at the same time, if you're saying I have this problem and I want a solution to this problem and he says, here's a solution to this problem. And she says, I don't want your solution. 
it's sort of like, okay, well, okay, you're, you just want to be angry right now, and that's cool, and, and that's fine. The only problem yeah, is yeah. every time we've seen Keiko, I mean, almost every time we've seen Keiko, that's been what it's been. Yep. Honestly, probably one of the most mature treatments of Keiko was in Rascals. <laughs> you're right. Oh, you're <laughs> which is, right. Which is annoying because, yeah, yeah. because I mean, look, there's real, there's real drama, there's real pathos, there's real, there are real issues to talk about in these situations, and they tend to boil down to the most basic things, mm-hmm. including the fact that now the kids of this space station are going to be educated by somebody who's not an educator. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying she won't be a fine teacher. She might be a great teacher. But, you know, we have this thing in the 20th century, in the 21st century, where we kind of think teachers should be trained to teach. Yeah. <laughs> but Starfleet's going to be like, well, you're not doing anything. And these kids are getting underfoot every place. I'll tell you what, let's call this a school. What do you say? All right. So let's talk about the school for a minute. Um, okay. I, I, I have kind of a problem here. With right. the idea that there are no schools already for these kids. Right. Again, they, they were taking uh, Cisco's taking Jake there. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. There's going to be kids. And, and I assume for like a 12 year old or whatever he's supposed to be, school is part of the thing here. So we already know that Star Trek is just full of orphans. Like the, the world of Star Trek is full of orphans. But they also hadn't planned on schools for the kids on Deep Space Nine. Now, there's something really tragic thinking about whether it's Jake or Nog just sitting in front of a computer terminal all day. That's for after school. <laughs> right? Yeah, it really is. It really is. Right. right. I, I had a job once where, like, I, I came in kind of late to the game and, and it missed, like, the formal part of the training where they're like, yeah, we're going to be in a group and you're going to do all this stuff. So what you're going to do is uh, you're just going to sit in front of this computer for eight hours a day, and, you know, clock in, clock out, and just read all this stuff. And I was like, really? Okay, that's that's my training is to sit here and read. And, and let me tell you, it's just sort of in one ear, out the other at that point. Right. I can't imagine that being a really good way to learn anything. Now, now maybe a holodeck school. Okay, maybe that might be an interesting way to do it. Uh, a, a hologram teacher might be an interesting way to do it. But... There should have been a contingency there before just Keiko raising her hand and saying, um, hey, how about I take these kids that are a school age who do not have a constant parental uh, influence in their lives because their parents are working? How about, yeah. how about we, we teach them? Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, I applaud Keiko for getting involved. Absolutely. Yeah. I find it hard to believe, as you do, that Starfleet wouldn't have thought of that. And, of course, that's mostly not what we were talking about. Mostly what we were talking about was whatever it is that's going on between Miles and Keiko. Yeah, just a and I hope, yeah. I hope, And I hope it doesn't stay that way because that's even – because we are talking about now years of television. Yeah, yeah. Of them just basically being the – I know I said the Bickering O'Briens earlier, but what is it, the Magnificent Bickersons? Mm-hmm. Was that the name yeah, of it? it was, I can't yeah, the, the, the Bickersons, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like I mean they really are the Bickersons mm-hmm. every time they're on screen, and I think, I think Miles deserves more than that. I think the I mean the character of Miles deserves more than that. The character of Keiko deserves more than that. Mm-hmm. I think the actress who plays Keiko deserves more than to just be a stereotypical nagging wife, mm-hmm. which is what she ends up feeling like a lot of the time. And I hope that doesn't I hope that doesn't continue. So far, throughout Deep uh, excuse me TNG. We haven't seen much to indicate that it won't continue that way, but I really hope it doesn't because, you know, yeah. 
she's now married to a, a lead character on a new show as opposed to being sort of an extra tied to an extra on right. another show. Right. Yeah. Unpopular idea. Oh, okay. I know I'm supposed to think the mob in this episode is bad. Hear me out. Um, okay. They've set right. up a situation here where you would understand if the people thought that Odo was a murderer, uh, especially when Odo says, yeah, it really looks like I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm curious what um, Zara's part in all of this was. The, the problem that I have is it turns out Eddie Albert's kid <laughs> is like really smooth, right? Oh, sure. He, and you needed somebody who wasn't going to play smooth because he seemed like he was up to something. Yes. Thank you. He he seems like an instigator. Yes. As opposed to just somebody who is uh, emotionally involved in, in the perceived injustice. Right. You need somebody yeah. who is frightened of Odo, who is yep. either frightened of Odo. Well, who's prejudiced, basically. Mm-hmm. He's either prejudiced mm-hmm. against Odo because he's afraid of him or he's prejudiced because... Well, because he's afraid of him, I guess. You need somebody who's scared. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Zara played, or the guy who played Zara, excuse me, he came off as a villain, not as somebody who was frightened, not as somebody who really felt like he was, you know, doing good work or, or really helping a bigger cause or anything like that. He just seemed like, like I thought we were going to find out that he was in league with Ibudan at some point. Or that he was going to gain something by having um, by having Odo out of the way, mm-hmm. and it turns out. I mean, I think honestly, I think he was just miscast because he's a good actor. Yeah. He was really menacing, and what he should have been was like you know, he should have been a bully. He should have been the kind of bully who's like you know who's who's constantly beating their chest because what they're really afraid of is you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know. It just, it, it, the whole thing, I won't say it didn't work. It just, it, it felt weird though. I, I would, however, go see any movie that he's in as a bad guy. With everything almost exactly as it was when we started, it is time to see what we can take from a man alone. I know we switched up how we did the recap earlier, but we're not going totally off the page. Like, usually, for example, this is the part where we talk about the messages and morals and meanings of the episode that we've covered for the day, and then we ask whether the episode stands the test of time. But today, that is exactly what we're going to do again, because, you know... Oh, I thought we were going to do the recap again. No, we don't want to freak everybody out too much, I don't think. A little bit. We want to freak everybody out a little bit. Yeah. But not too much. <laughs> uh, the episode is A Man Alone. And the uh, questions I just talked about, John, the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode, and whether the whole thing holds up, are the parts we're hitting now. Uh, let's start with that holding up bit. Does A Man Alone hold up, as far as you're concerned? Well, you know, it's weird how when you show one episode out of order, coming back to this really does feel like a step backward. Mm. Um, so one thing right up front. Uh, I, I mentioned last week how I found Avery Brooks had really relaxed into the role in past prologue. In this episode, I feel like we have emissary Avery Brooks again. 
And and it, it is he has moments that are really good and moments like in particular that scene with Dax where I think he's just not good. And, and it throws me because it takes me out of the scene. As for the story, well, you have to ask which story. <laughs> so you've got the uh, the Miles and uh, Keiko story, which is just not really a story. It, it It's a, a bickering couple at this point. You have the Dax and Bashir story, which just seems to be kind of pathetic at this point until we get beyond that. Um, so if we focus on the A story, the A plot here about Odo, it's kind of a paint-by-numbers episode. Uh, you frame a guy for murder. We know he's not the guy, but everything looks like he's the guy. Fake it out until you get the reveal at the end. And, and literally the reveal by pulling the mask off and uh, see also Scooby-Doo, see also Mission Impossible. Uh, but you give it a little bit of a sci-fi twist by throwing a clone in there. Um so it, taking those three elements on their own as stories, I don't think they work really, really well. Uh, although I think that um, there are moments here that are fantastic. I love that scene between Odo and Quark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if that's just pillar filler, but man, does it really work. It, it, it is it's sort of like last week seeing the scene between Kira and Odo. Wonderful, wonderful acting. And it's just you get to kind of slow the episode down and not do anything fancy and just let the actors act and they totally deliver scene like that is a standout. Unfortunately, not everything adds up to be a great episode. So I don't think it holds up, but here's the thing. I don't think it's a terrible episode. I think that it uh, unfairly compared to last week where past prologue, I told you I was pretty well riveted during that episode and I enjoyed watching it over and over again. I enjoyed scenes out of this episode, rewatching it for, uh, for our podcast, but just as an episode, taking it as uh, as a complete story, I don't think it really works that well. And that that's unfortunate because it could just be um, the order in which we've seen them. But maybe if this did air right after Emissary, people would have been looking at their watches like, ooh, uh, is this what we're in for here? <laughs> you know, hmm. fortunately, past prologue was so strong that, that you wanted to come back. And, and I do feel kind of week after week some uh, investment in the characters, e- even if a story like this isn't that strong. So uh, so how about you? I mean, I want to say it's fine because I think it is fine. I mean, there are good scenes. Odo and Quark, as you mentioned, Odo and Cisco. when Odo's like, I could have killed him. You don't know. I mean, I thought that was a pretty good scene as well. Honestly, what it feels like is a season one episode from a Star Trek series, right? Yeah. I mean, that's really what yeah. it feels like. It's, it's stronger, honestly, than a lot of the season one episodes from next gen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it feels, it feels early. And what's difficult for me, it, it's it's tough for me to then say, so does this hold up, does it not hold up? It wouldn't have made me never want to watch it again, mm-hmm. I guess is what I would say. Does it tell me enough that I'm like, oh, I got to know more about these characters? I mean, it delivers a very Star Trek message. You know, the whole thing about not being ruled by mob mentality. Don't assume, mm-hmm. you know, just because somebody is different from you that they're bad. Well, good point. You, you mentioned some of the messages already, because that might be one of the strengths of the episode then. Uh, so what, what do you have for messages? 
I'd say like I mean, one of the obvious messages is don't suspect the other because, you know, he or she is an other. Don't suspect somebody who's different just because they're different from you. Just yeah. because they're not like you doesn't make them bad or evil. And of course, don't be ruled by mob mentality as well. Um, at the same time, I mean, they really did set it up. So what else could it have been? You know, you're going to have to, yeah, you have yeah. to go pretty far before you're like, or, you know, he could have been cloning himself and then murdered himself. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want to give everybody a pass for their mob mentality at the same time. You do get the mob in this case. They're not just like, oh, he's a shapeshifter. I don't like him. They're like, well, it's a murder that could only have been committed by a shapeshifter. Do we know any? Well, there's the one. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the Star Trek message is, you know, don't be ruled by mob mentality. And don't, you know, don't suspect somebody who's different from you just because they're different. Uh, even though they did give you a many more reasons to suspect him in this episode. Or they gave the you know, the local villagers with the torches and the pitchforks more reason to suspect him in this episode. What about you? There were definitely other messages. Well, I still feel like there was an opportunity for that message about not judging others uh, to have some payoff between Jake and Nog. You know, Jake and Nog are getting along fine because they're kids and they're into mischief, even though that was a terrible scene. Um, yes. It, it was just a little weird to to see Cisco fly off the handle like that just right away. Like, you're not to hang out with that kid. And then Jake runs away behind the, <laughs> behind the bulkhead. You know, it was just really odd. Let's remember, though, the way that actually went. So, Emissary, Nog was arrested for breaking and entering and stealing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Sure was. And so then the next week, Nog is getting Jake in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you don't skip that week in between, it might make Cisco's, um, his, his attitude towards Nog maybe make a bit more sense if yeah. you remember that he was just busted on a B&A. Uh, very true. But, you know, in the end, they, they end up in school. They're going to learn together. We're sort of setting us up here that that there will be a friendship there and that at least they're both going to be under the tutelage of Keiko O'Brien. Um, now, my message is very similar to yours. You know, uh, don't jump to conclusions. Wait for the evidence. Lynch mobs are bad. Yes. Uh, very, very clearly so. This is why we have a justice system, because anybody can be worked up about the immediate perceived injustice. But that's why we have rule of law, and that's why we don't just allow people to um, act out on what they think the right thing is to do. No, we actually take our time and uh, go through a court system, and um, and we don't allow lynch mobs. I think that's that's a good, solid Star Trek message. <laughs> I think it's a good, solid message, no matter what. And uh, willing to say that that holds up? I, I absolutely would get behind the idea that that holds up. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. If you're looking for more podcasts, look at podcast.roddenberry.com. You'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, The Trek Files, Women at Warp, and Priority One. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, you can check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Babel. Babel. 
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I am so excited, waiting for the latest Ebert on clone to take his first steps. I am a machine of loving grace. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.